Let's, um, let's pray as we start. Jesus, I pray that today that we would incline our hearts to hear from you. That we would open up our eyes to see you in your glory. That we would unite ourselves in our word. And that we would be satisfied by your spirit today. That if we need to be challenged, that you would challenge us. If we need to be encouraged, you would encourage us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's start with a question. Where does your fuel for being a Christian come from? What power drives your ministry as a follower of Jesus? What keeps you going to serve others in your church family or in your world around you? Some of you might say Red Bull. Rob might say milkshakes. Some of you might say books. Some of you might say prayer. As you head into the new year, what will your new year's prayer be? God, please give me more fill in the blank to spread your gospel. Today we're going to see, or hopefully see, that the power for our service of God should come from the Holy Spirit living inside us. The power of the Holy Spirit graciously given to us when we believe in Jesus. Jesus, the one who fulfilled God's plan of salvation. See what I did there? Holy Spirit, Jesus, God, the Trinity. As I studied this passage, I thought the Trinity came out really clearly, and it was incredible to see the perfect work of God enacted through the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a perfect model of God and his three persons working together to bring glory to his name and to kickstart the ministry of one of the greatest men ever to walk the earth, John the Baptist. I've got a diagram that might be helpful. Um, That's not it. got too many jobs. What a diagram that might be helpful. Here we go. So we're going to see three things. We're going to see that um, God the Father fulfills his promises. Jesus, behind my head, brings salvation. And the Holy Spirit is the one that gives us power to serve. What I want us to take away is that God's promise of salvation is fulfilled in Jesus and should fill humble, spirit-filled service in us. When we look at John's family, we're going to see a family that are dedicated to serving God in obedience to his work and through spirit-filled ministry. So let's have a look at this incredible set of circumstances played out in this family over 2,000 years ago. Now the context of this passage is given to us at the beginning of chapter 1, so I thought it would be helpful if you just flip to the beginning of chapter 1 and start looking at, we're just going to look at a couple of verses and summarise through it. So verse 5 In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, 
going about their lives, walking blamelessly in the commandments of the Lord. That sounds pretty idyllic, right? Sounds like a very good family life. But all was not perfect. Elizabeth was barren. She wasn't able to have children. And in those days, that would have been a disgrace. She would have been sneered at. People would have talked about her. She would have been cast out from society. And the angel Gabriel, he comes to Zechariah and he tells him in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So Zechariah has been praying for his wife to have a child. And God tells him through the angel that it's going to happen. And then the angel speaks this prophecy, a word, a true word from God about the future. Let's keep reading, verse 14. And let's just think of the promises that God says as we go through. You should call his name John, verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, sorry, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of the wisdom to the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So many promises. Many will rejoice. He will be great. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many people to God. He will make people ready for the Lord. This child, even before he's born, even before he's conceived, is destined for a life of service filled by the Holy Spirit. Now, Zechariah, he doesn't really believe the angel, and so the angel makes him mute, and probably deaf as well, until the day that God's promises are fulfilled. And the angel says, when these promises are fulfilled, you will be able to speak again. Elizabeth conceives, just as God has promised, hides herself away for five months, then is visited by Mary, who's had a very similar experience, but with the unborn Jesus. So already... We can see God at work in the lives of Elizabeth and, Zach- Elizabeth and Zachariah. A miraculous conception, God prophesying over their lives, fulfilling his promises, and a spirit-filled encounter with the unborn Jesus with the miracle of his life. Is Jesus the one who's going to bring salvation? Sometimes it's good just to pause and look at what God's done in your family. We've seen it this week, haven't we, in the incredible blessing of Lydia and Susie Newell. Bethan and I have seen it in our family with the miracle of Hannah's life. God is so good to us, and through good times and bad times, he works through all our different families. Anyway, that blessing continues in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth through the section we're going to look at today. But that just gives you a little bit of context where we're coming from. So let's start by looking at the top of that triangle, God fulfilling his promises. Thanks, Ross. We're going to start by looking at God, the Father, fulfilling his promises. Let's read from verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. 
They said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on their neighbours. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with them. So Elizabeth gives birth to a son. That's promise one. God's fulfilled. Then everyone comes over. They have a big rejoicing party session thing. That's promise two fulfilled. We saw that at the beginning of chapter one. What's the response at this point? The response of Zechariah and Elizabeth is obedience. Remember that God commanded through the angel that his name be called John. But... This child has been born, and all the family have turned up for the circumcision um, event and naming ceremony, and are like, call him this, call him that. In Jewish tradition, you called your firstborn son after the father. So that's why the family say, why on earth would you call him John? It doesn't sound like Zechariah. It's spelt differently. You can imagine the peer pressure, the temptation to say, well, actually, my family are important. Maybe he could have John as his second name. Or we could just call him John as a nickname. But they choose their family, sorry, they choose above their family and above tradition to name him as God had commanded. They're obedient to what God had commanded. And even the name John in itself is testimony to God's goodness through keeping his promises. John means God is gracious. So this child's name declares the God who gives what we could never deserve and what they could never deserve. Then Zechariah gets his voice back. He speaks. That's promise three fulfilled. And what's the response then of the people? Well, in verse 65, it's fear. They see God at work in the life of this family and they're afraid. And actually this reaction, it spreads through the land. And people say, what then will this child be? People aren't sure. But then it says, for the hand of the Lord was with him. The hand of the Lord was with him. This child is filled with the Holy Spirit from the moment he's born. And that's promise four fulfilled. We saw at the beginning of chapter one. Now this should encourage and challenge us. It should encourage us that God will fulfill his promises to us. And I've picked four promises. There's so many promises in the Bible. I've picked four promises from the New Testament that hopefully we can be encouraged by. So he will fulfill his promise in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 that says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's something God will fulfill. In Philippians 4, 9, God promises this. The same God who takes care of me, that's Paul talking, will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus, will supply all your needs from his glorious riches. That's something God will fulfill. Romans 8.39, nothing in creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's something that God promises and will fulfill. One more from Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. They are promises that God has made in his word and he will fulfill them just as we see him fulfilling lives, fulfilling, fulfilling promises in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth. But I think also we should be challenged because so often we doubt God and his goodness and his ability to fulfill his, prom- fulfill his promises and we worry that his promises aren't true. And I think that's partly because we go through life being let down by each other and somehow we think that God has the same flawed human characteristics. And that's not true. We doubt God's peace and comfort when we feel weary and burdened. We doubt God's ability to provide our needs. We think that somehow our sin or our circumstances can separate us from the love of God. We somehow think that God will take away our salvation as a punishment for when we let him down. Just cover it up, just cover it up. Thank you. Um, we somehow think that God will take away our salvation or punishment when we let him down. None of those things are true. They're all wrong thoughts. They're sinful thoughts in one sense. God always fulfills his promises in his perfect timing. We might think they need to happen quicker, but they happen in his perfect timing. That's why 2 Corinthians 1.20 states, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's Jesus. That is why it is through him, Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Zechariah knows that. Elizabeth knows that. Do you know that? So Zechariah knows that, and we're going to see that in the first part of the song he sings. So he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies, and he sings this song, or speaks this prophecy. So let's have a look. So secondly, we're going to look at Jesus as the one who brings salvation. So we'll look at verse 67, the first half of this prophecy. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel... For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That's one sentence. It must be the longest sentence in the Bible. The first time Zechariah speaks, after nine months of being mute, is to lift up a song of praise about Jesus. His miraculous son has just been born to his old barren wife, and the first thing he says is to praise God and start talking about Jesus. This is a man who's got his priorities right. His first focus is Jesus, the one who he knows is coming. I wonder what we would do here, what our focus would be. Oh, isn't he cute? Where am I going to put all these presents? Oh, he looks just like his mother. Oh, thank you for coming, Auntie Esther. Oh, quick, his nappy knee is changing. 
When was the last time he slept? When does he need to eat next? Is he ready to move into the next size nappies? What sleep training program should we put him on? What does this person on Instagram say about them? Not for Zechariah. His focus is on God. And so he says, Blessed be the Lord of Israel for, blessed be the Lord of Israel because, because he has raised up a horn of salvation. Eh? Okay, let's unpick this. The horn is many animal strength. If you're an animal and you have a horn, that's your strong part. Um, animals use their horns to battle, to battle each other, and they use their horns to overcome their enemies. I quite like YouTube compilations, and I recently watched one of um, predator versus prey, of different prey overcoming their predator, predators, like wildebeest versus lion, that sort of thing. And lots of the animals, <laughs> I'm not that sorry, I don't think I'm that weird. Lots of the animals successfully defending themselves, they had horns. They were able to, you know, throw the lions out of the way using their horns, and, and then the predators would run off. Maybe have a watch when we go home. In the Bible, therefore, the horn is used to symbolize strength and the overcoming of an enemy. For example, in Psalm 18, verse 2, it says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. The horn of salvation is God's strength that overcomes the enemy. In our passage, this is referring to Jesus. He is raised up by God to battle with the enemy and overcome it. Jesus, the ultimate strength of God, will defeat, will go on in Luke, in the Bible, to defeat the greatest enemy, our greatest enemy, of sin and death, so that we might be able to have eternal life. In fact, Zechariah is so sure it will happen that he speaks as if it has already happened in the past tense. This is what I say to my pupils in school. Look at the verbs. Has visited, has redeemed, has raised up. He's speaking in the past tense as if it's already happened. He's looking at what's happened over the last nine months in his life and he's saying that salvation has come is come through the unborn baby Jesus in Mary's womb. And with the blessing of the truth of the Bible, we ourselves know that it's happened. We see Jesus come to earth as this great horn of salvation, not as some extensively robed, mighty-looking king with a great army of chariots and soldiers behind him, but as a humble king, filled with the Holy Spirit, who followed his Father's will to be sacrificed on a cross. God is continuing to fulfill the promises that he spoke from his Old Testament prophets and to Abraham to bring into the world a Messiah who will, verse 71, save us from our enemies and the hands of all who hate us. This is the same salvation that Mary's just sung about in her song that we looked at on Christmas Day. She sang about salvation for all people everywhere in her son Jesus. So what should our response be? Well, firstly, we need to accept this salvation. To realise that we need it, and to say that we are going to trust in Jesus to save us. That we're going to repent, and live God's way, and not our own. 
to trust God's promises and not the empty promises of the world that we live in. We can try and find our salvation in other things, right? Money, possessions, a good career, sex. But this says salvation is raised up by God to be found nowhere but Jesus. As Rob shared on Friday, if we try and find salvation in other things, we're going to be disappointed. We won't have lasting joy in any form of salvation this world offers. Lasting joy, true lasting joy is only found through the salvation brought by Jesus. Our second response then in verse 74 is that we need to serve God for the rest of our days. From the moment we accept Jesus' salvation into our lives and become part of God's adopted family, we're called to serve him. And that's what John is going to do. And that leads us to the second part of Zechariah's song. Remember, he's put Jesus first. He spent half his song talking about Jesus. Now he turns his attention to his new son and shows us, using this prophecy, how we should serve God. So thirdly, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit filling us to serve. Let's have a look. Verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. You can imagine at this point, right, this is what I imagined anyway, him holding John in his arms like this, a bit of a Lion King moment, and saying, and you, my child, and you, my son. And then he pours out this prophecy of what John is going to do in his life. Okay, those are the four things So verse 76, he's going to prepare the way for Jesus. John is going to get people ready for Jesus. I would say that's a pretty humble thing. His whole life is to be spent saying, don't focus on me, focus on the one who is to come. Get ready for Jesus, the one who I am not worthy to tie the sandals, the laces on his sandals. Now you can't do that with a proud attitude. So he's got to be humble. Secondly, verse 77, he's, a, he's an evangelist. He has to share his knowledge of salvation. He is called to tell people about the wonder of forgiveness. Now people who know things estimate that thousands of Jews became to, came to believe in Jesus and were baptised by John. So he was an evangelist that shared the gospel with thousands and thousands came to know Jesus. Thirdly, verse 79, he's called to make God's kingdom visible. God's kingdom is light. And by his mercy, that kingdom is about to come to the earth through his son Jesus. That's what it means by the metaphor of the sunrise. God's kingdom, God's light coming to earth. And John is called to shine that light into the darkness of the world. He's going to be changed by Jesus. He's already filled with the Holy Spirit. And as a result... He has to shine that light he has into the darkness of the world. He's to live the way of God's kingdom. So he has to love everyone, including his enemies, when the world turn against their enemies and hate them. He has to speak the truth 
to everyone around him when the world around him are telling lies. He is to live humbly serving others when the people around him in the world in darkness are selfishly storing up for themselves as much as they can. He is to live humbly amongst proud people. And fourthly, he is to guide people to peace. When people come to him stressed out, burdens, say, John, I can't do it anymore. He's going to show them the one who comforts in a way that no one else can. The God who brings peace that is beyond understanding. The peace from knowing Jesus and knowing that this world is not the end. Now that's John's calling, and he accepts it. He follows in the footsteps of his parents, who also followed God's will. He could have done a Jonah. He could have turned around and said, no God, I'm not doing it, and walked away. But we know he obeyed, because we see what happens in chapter 3. Just flick forward a couple of pages to chapter 3. We're going to read a couple of verses. And John, he grows up. He spends some time in the desert. He grows strong in spirit. And then it says, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He fulfills what God has called him to do. And throughout the rest of chapter 3, and maybe go home and read the rest, we see John, filled with the Spirit, humbly speaking the truth of Jesus' salvation and the fulfilment of God's promises. He openly speaks the light of God's kingdom into the crowds who came to him. He humbly points the way to the greater person of Jesus, the one who had baptised them with the Holy Spirit. And in fact, what makes John's humility even greater is that once he's finished pointing everyone to Jesus, these people will then become Jesus' followers. All the people that were helping him, that, that kind of became his congregation almost, he gave them to Jesus. Imagine Rob, right? Imagine Rob building up Beckentree Church, working his socks off, baptising thousands of people, you know, have a huge building, and then him going to John at Dagenham Parish Church and saying, this is my congregation, you have them. That's pretty humble, right? And then he goes to King Herod. So this is Rob then going to, to the king, the queen, queen and king. He goes to King Herod, and he speaks God's kingdom into his life. He says, Herod, you've sinned. You've married your brother's wife. And Herod takes him and puts him in prison, and then beheads him. John loves Jesus so much that he's willing to go before kings, powerful kings, and to lay down his life in service to Jesus. He would have been a model to the early church, and he's a model for us. John's life is a model for us as to what true service to God looks like. But we need to be really clear. John did not do this in his own strength. He did it through the God's gracious gift of the Holy Spirit that was in him from the moment he was born. As the angel prophesied over him, that's God's promise fulfilled. John lived his life in the truth of God's promises. He knew the salvation of Jesus and he was filled with the Holy Spirit who enabled him to serve boldly and powerfully until his death. What a testimony of how to be a good Christian. So what does it mean for us? 
Well, if you're not a Christian, then you're living in darkness. The way you're living leads to death. But you can trust that God's promise to you is true. That if you call on his name and ask him into your life, then he will save you. He will save you. And God invites you to accept this salvation, to believe that Jesus came to this earth and sacrificed his life on a cross so that you can be set free from the great enemy of sin. And God offers you his life-changing spirit to live inside you, to change you as a person so that you can live in light. If you're just going through the motions of coming to church, if you're not a Christian, then actually any way that you serve in the church is nothing more than a good deed. Without the Holy Spirit, the things that we do in service, they're nothing more than kind of a religious act. Reading the Bible, coming to church, standing up, playing music, saying a prayer, these things don't fill you with God's power. The only thing that can do that is believing in Jesus, the one who can baptise you with the Holy Spirit. So choose to do that today. Let God change your heart, then you can truly serve him as one of his people. And if you are a Christian, then we need to see that God's calling is our calling too. As people who know God and have accepted his salvation, So, like John, we're called to do those four things. We're called to get people ready for Jesus, to focus people to him. That might be a conversation at work tomorrow morning. might be a conversation between your back gardens. We're called to share our knowledge of salvation. We're called to share the gospel. Maybe that's a chat to someone at work, a chat with a neighbour, or maybe offering to read a book of the Bible with someone. We're called to shine light into darkness, to live the way of God's kingdom, not joining in with gossip at work, staying sober, speaking the truth even when it's difficult. And we're called to guide people to peace, to show people that there is a peace to be found in the stress of life, in the frustrations of the world that we live in. And like John, we should gratefully and lovingly accept this calling because we love him because he first loved us, loved us. Because he sent Jesus to be our salvation, we love him and we serve him. And we have the same power as John inside us. When we accept Jesus into our lives, when you become a Christian, you're filled with the Holy Spirit who will help you. We can't rely on our own strength to serve God. We could never do these things alone. But he uses us as his people. He gives us the strength to do it. And so our, sal- our salvation that he gave us, that should lead to our service. So this is how to serve like John. Be filled with the Holy Spirit by believing in Jesus. God wants his glory to shine through us. And he uses us as people who were living in darkness, but are welcomed through Jesus into the kingdom of life to live a life of service to him by his Holy Spirit. And I would say, as we head into the new year, the most important New Year's resolution we could possibly have is to want to be people who are dedicated to humble, spirit-filled service to the one who gave us our salvation. Let's pray that now. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would desire 
to be people who want to serve you, trusting that we do not do this in our own strength, but we do this by your Spirit, who you graciously gave to us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be bold in sharing what we know, in sharing the great gospel that you have given us. To shine light into darkness, to live your way in a world that is so dark, and to guide people to your peace. Please, Lord, even this week, give us opportunities to put this into practice. Show us places and people that you want us to talk to. Let us take the opportunities that we've been given and the places that we work and the people that you've put around us to serve you. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.